in the midst of a me generation, a self-centered American consumeristic worldview and lifestyle? How do we live as the people of God with an eye toward our children? And while I'm speaking to parents, I'm also speaking to everybody because you all have kids in your world. You have children in your families, and your extended families. You have children in your neighborhoods. You have children in your church. You have children in the places that you engage randomly throughout. And you can be the voice of God in those places. Parents, you have a specific call from God, particularly in this text, to be about the things of God and your children so that your children are raised to have their confidence in God. It is not your job to set your child's heart on God. You can't do that. It is your job to be a vocal, a mouthpiece, a picture of the story of God. Most particularly, the story of God in your own life. And while many of us are very happy to tell our kids about our victories, it's much different to tell our kids about our defeats. While we're all about making sure that our kids understand that they and learn the things that we're strong in, It's different for us to guide them in the things that they're naturally weak in that they oftentimes receive from us and from the environments in which we're raising them. Which is why I said the remedy that it is that is offered here in Psalm 78, you might not like. Because what God tells the people of Israel here is that it is our job as adults to tell to the generation coming after us the works of God. But notice how he phrases them. He calls them parables and dark stories. These are the things that we are to share. Every parent, every person is going to gravitate toward sharing their their victories and strengths. But what does it mean for us to own our weaknesses and to own our own stories and to live for our children walking in freedom from those things that have owned us in our own lives? And shame plays largely into that. Here in this text, um, these parables, these dark sayings from of old, is, is what it is that God is telling adults, is what he's telling parents to share with the coming generation, to share with children, in order that they might have their hope set on God. So three basic, particularly parenting principles that I just want to throw out there that I'm treating as assumptions, but that I don't know that as American parents we oftentimes think of things. But if we don't have these assumptions laid out there, then how we talk for the rest of our time might not make a lot of sense. Number one is that parents exist for kids and not kids for parents. Parents exist for kids and not kids for parents. God gives children to parents so that parents raise them to release them. That's the principle. Your children don't exist for you to feel good about you. Your children exist for you to raise them in the nurture and knowledge of Christ and for God to use you as an instrument in their lives. You exist for them and not them for you. That's assumption number one that I'm just going to be working off of. If you, if you have a problem with any of these assumptions, I mean, feel free to talk to me. We can talk about it, but this is how it's going to work at least for the next few minutes. Um, no, number two is, is that it's a parent's job to give. Period. It's a parent's job to give. What I think American parenting has taught us is that we, need, that we are in a give and take with our kids, that it's about giving and receiving. And particularly the older our kids get, and the more that we think that we teach them responsibility, the more we expect them to start interacting with us on the, okay, now it's your turn to give. It's a child's job to give, don't get me wrong, but they'll answer to God for that. 
right? It's your job to make sure that they know the reason that they honor you as father and mother is because they honor God, right? And so while obedience and honor and ensuring that as parents is vitally important, particularly obedience in every circumstance, choose your battles wisely, win every battle you choose, that kind of a thing. Um, It is for a greater purpose than you. It is for the purpose of leading them to God. They need to learn to obey you so that they learn to obey God. Right? So that, that, it's a parent's job to give. That's it. Right? Um, you, need, you can receive everything you need both from God and from your, from your spouse. And if you don't have a spouse, you can receive everything you need from God. Um, that, that, it, that is a possibility. So that's the second assumption. The third assumption is that parenting is really difficult. Right? Parenting is, is, is really difficult. It just, it just is. The amount of faith and grace and mercy that is required, um, when you look at it all down through Scripture, is just huge. Parenting is, is difficult, and you will get many, many things wrong. And there is grace for everything that you get wrong. Right? Those, those are the three assumptions that we'll be, we'll be talking off of for the rest of the time. I'm not going to repeat them again, but I did want to throw those out there because those form a basic model um, of how we're going to talk about the rest of this time together. So, the, the, the psalmist says it's important for you to tell your kids about yourself, particularly the dark things about yourself. It's important for you to share with your children um, the things that you don't want for them that are about you, as much as the things that you want for them that are about you. Right? Um, there's what ultimately Psalm 78 is calling us to is to vulnerability. Right? What Psalm 78 is calling us to is to adult vulnerability, to parental vulnerability. There's a difference between transparency and vulnerability. I am not advocating for emotional vomiting on your children. Right? That's destructive, borderline abusive. You, you don't want to do that. What you do want to do is, with God's wisdom, grow them in the nurture of Christ, of which you are their primary learning tool. You are the way that they'll learn about God, for good or bad. And there's grace for everything, in and through that. But vulnerability is not transparency. Transparency is the, is the ability to be open and honest, or the choice to be open and honest, um, to, to, to be bare, right? Um, and transparency is, is very popular in today's culture, particularly in cultural ways. A lot of like the blogs that you read will be about transparency. Uh, it'll be somebody just sort of like, airing their stuff, you know, like this is who I am and this is what I'm learning. And, we, and we're drawn to that because that feels authentic and on many levels it is. Um, but transparency can also be just openness and uh, um, honesty for the sake of myself. Like transparency can still be selfish. Vulnerability is transparency held within community. Right? Transparency can still just be about you Vulnerability is transparency held within community. And, and it's vulnerability that God calls us to. And it's uh, important to understand that when it is that God leads us and draws us into vulnerability, that means that we're going to be doing it with other people. So on many levels, we are inviting them into our own stuff, which is exactly what Psalm 78 is talking about here. Inviting your kids into your story being transparent with them within the community of your family. Small groups don't work unless there's vulnerability. 
And you may have been part of small groups that didn't work because there wasn't vulnerability. You might be part of a great small group that works because there is vulnerability. But if a small group seems to be stagnant, my first place to go to is where's the level of vulnerability in the group? Um, so it's just to say that like vulnerability can happen in families, it can happen in small groups, it can happen in friendships, it can happen in churches. You know, it's, it's, it, vulnerability is a very important hallmark of what it means for us to live for the next generation. And it's what Psalm 78 calls us to. How many of you have seen Brene Brown's uh, talk, TED Talk on YouTube about vulnerability? Okay, a few people. All right, I thought there'd be more than that. Um, it went semi-viral, and uh, because that's the case, Justin, can we post that this week, please? Thanks. Um, Brene Brown uh, is a uh, sociologist um, slash philosopher. Um, she, she's brilliant. Uh, she's really brilliant. She gets um, so much... Um, I think, of the wholeness that God desires for humans. I think that God's gifted her to understand it in some really unique ways and, um, and to then communicate it as well. Um, I want to read some thoughts from B'nai Brown. Number one is this, is that vulnerability is not weakness. And the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure we face every day are not optional. Our only choice is a question of engagement. Right? So it's not a question of whether or not you're fallen and dark and screwed up and if your kids can see it or not. They can. And, right, and, and we all are. You know, it's how it is. The question is, is, are you willing to engage it? Or you just want to live a fantasy life of acting like it's not there? Uh, our willingness to own and engage our own vulnerability determines the depth of our courage and the clarity of our purpose. Right? The level to which we protect ourselves from being vulnerable is a measure of our fear and disconnection. Some of you in this room have come to me and have said, Jay, my life just feels purposeless or meaningless. And if you remember where it is that we went, it was, well, how are you connected? How are you connected? And pretty much without fail, people respond to that with, I'm asking you about my purpose. <laughs> right, but there is no purpose without connection. Right? Your dreams aren't for you. Your hopes and visions, they're not for you. If you think that your hopes and visions and goals and ambitions for yourself are not on some level affecting symbiotically your family and the people around you, then you're just living delusionally. So the question is, is, is not, what's my purpose? The question is, is, how are you connected to the rest of the humanity that God has put in your path so that your truest purpose is there, which is to be a channel of God's love to other people? then God can feed into you some specificities of what it means for you to be you in those places. She goes on to say, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known. And when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Love is not something we give or get. It is something that we nurture and grow. Did you hear that? Love is not something that we give or get. It is something that we nurture and grow, a connection that can only be cultivated between two people when it exists within each one of them. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Right? And that sounds like psychology speak, but how did Jesus tell you to love the Lord your God? By your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How did he tell you to love your neighbor? As you love yourself. So take it up with him. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path to that meaning. For parents, the real question should be, are you engaged? 
Are you paying attention? I would add, what do you want for your kids? A lot of times, if we engage parents, I say, what's your goal for your child? I want them to be able to stand on their own two feet. I want them to make their mark on the world. I want them to have it better than I had it. Really? That's all you got? There's not more passion in there? There's not more words and definition for who you see your child to be than stand on their own two feet? Better than what I had it? That's a relationship that's lacking vulnerability. Are you engaged? Are you paying attention? If so, plan to make lots of mistakes and bad decisions. This is Brene Brown again. Imperfect parenting moments turn into gifts as our children watch us try to figure out what went wrong and how we can do better next time. The mandate is not to be perfect and raise happy children. Perfection doesn't exist, and I've found what makes children happy doesn't always prepare them to be courageous, engaged adults. And lastly, she says, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of light. And so, in the midst of all of these things, talking about vulnerability and whatnot, we're going to just really play this thing out in in real time. Um, My parents... Uh, John and Terry McCumber, most of you know them, they go to Cornerstone. And uh, one of the major keys to my spiritual freedom, particularly over the course of the last uh, five to ten years or so, has been my dad embracing vulnerability so as to help me see who I am and why I am the way that I am and what it might mean for me to walk in in freedom from some of those things. And so uh, this whole thing started a, a while ago with dad's own personal spiritual journey. Um, but it's sort of like built to a head and to a point of a blessing that my dad gave my brother and I uh, back in 2008 when he took us on a trip to Wyoming. So it's important for, for you folks to, to know a little bit about my family, which is that my dad grew up out west. Uh, he grew up, uh, he was born in Colorado, moved all over uh, the, the, uh, the west, particularly through the oil fields. His dad worked in the oil fields. And um, so he was all over. He'll tell you a little bit more about that when he comes up. Um, but uh, when we, when my mom and dad um, got married, Dad was somewhat estranged from his family at that point because of some of the spiritual choices that he had made. So they moved to Pennsylvania, which is where all my, my mom's family was. So I grew up very relationally connected to a lot of my mom's family and pretty disconnected from a lot of my dad's family. We call my dad's dad, my grandfather, we call him Pappy. Uh, we call uh, uh, his wife Rosie. Um, it was Granny. And these are my grandparents on my dad's side, who I saw every few years probably. And um, who dad wasn't overly connected with, but he, he became more connected with the more that he grew spiritually as well. Um, his dad wasn't a believer until, uh, well, recently, over the last few 10 years or so. And dad actually got to baptize his dad, which is very cool. Um, anyway, we grew up without a lot of connection to that place or to that land, right? We um, were East Coast people. We grew up on the East Coast. I, this, is, this is how we roll, um, is like East Coasters. It's a different place out there. It's a different, it's a different culture to grow up in. Where Dad considers home Wyoming, even though he lived in many states. Um, now that I've been out there, I understand Dad a lot better. And, uh, and I also understand where he came from a lot better. So he took us to Wyoming, and this is where we flew into. Um, that's Jackson Hole. 
Okay, so dad took us to, uh, to Wyoming. Now dad, now, dad grew up in Cody, Wyoming, which is just uh, out 20, 30 miles from Yellowstone National Park. So he grew up in, if you've ever been to Yellowstone, literally one of the most beautiful places in America. Um, so we went to Yellowstone first, and he took us all over the place, and we got to see that's the Grand Tetons, and um, that's Yellowstone Lake, which is all these really, really beautiful places. That's Old Faithful, um, which is pretty faithful, I found out. Um, it, was, it was right on the money. There's these really cool, like, formations and stinky gases coming out of the ground. Yellowstone is actually an 80-square-mile supervolcano. At some point, Yellowstone's going to erupt, and I hope that me and my family aren't around anymore for that because that's just going to, like, we're going to just going to blow up America. Um, It's that big. Uh, So this is some other, I'm just gorgeous, beautiful stuff that we saw. You know, there's this, like, elk laying around, you know, and uh, that, that, that's Yellowstone Falls, this really, really beautiful location, you know, herds of buffalo, and got a little too close on that one. Um, check out that rub, you hunters. Um, you know, I mean, it just, it's just this incredible, that, that's, that's the gate to hell. Um, that's what they call it. And I think it actually might be because it smelled so bad. Uh, it was really bad. This is Cody, Wyoming. Uh, Cody, Wyoming is nestled in this valley. Um, that's Rattlesnake Mountain in the background there. Uh, and that's the world's longest running rodeo. Buffalo Bills from Cody, Wyoming. And they've had a rodeo every day in Cody's existence since Buffalo Bill, um, which is just sort of weird. All right, but kind of cool too. This is my family. That's Pappy there, the sober-looking gentleman in the front. That's Gene. You guys know him. That's me. That's when I had long hair, so I wore a bandana a lot. And that's Dad in the background. And we stayed with uh, Uncle Alan and Aunt Fran. Now, I'd never met these people before. I heard Dad talk about them, and we spent time with them, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was great to engage and to watch them engage. I mean, Gene and I both remarked about just observing them engaging together uh, helped us understand Dad a lot more. Uh, in Cody, Wyoming, the Cumbers owned a locksmith and stained glass shop. And um, it's still there, and they're still doing locksmithing. And we learned a lot about our history with all of these different people from our past. And Aunt Fran had some photos and um, people that we had heard about from Dad, but, like, we had actually got to see them and, and engage them and, like, look at pictures of their faces. Um, that handsome chap to the left of the woman, isn't that her dad? Isn't that Tim Dad's John Edward? My dad's name is John Edward McCumber. My name is John Edward McCumber Jr. My son's name is John Edward McCumber III. That's John Edward McCumber right there. And in the middle is Eleanor Roosevelt. And he flew her plane. So uh, that's kind of cool. Our family's got Masonic roots. Uh, Dad's granddad was really, really into the whole Freemasonry thing, which if you know anything about that, you know, you gotta, you got to learn about that and know how that affected your family and what that meant. That's the high school where Dad went to uh, middle school and, and high school in Cody, Wyoming. That's the, uh, the gravestone for Dad's mom. Uh, my grandmother died when Dad was 16, um, and that's a key part of Dad's story, which he'll tell you about. We went and bought a heart attack and ate it. Um, up there on that bowl, there used to be bull testicles, but I ate those, and that was interesting. Um, but... I tell you what, if you want a good steak, folks, go to this place. That's the best piece of red meat I ever had. Uh, that's the view from Cody. Like, this is where Dad grew up, like, looking at, at this 
incredible place. That's an oil rig. We went there. Uh, Pappy would have worked on these. And so we went around to the places where he would have worked and some of the things that he did. Um, we learned some good lessons <laughs> along the way. Um, then we finally made our way to uh, the McCumber Homestead. Now, back in the day, like way back in the day, America was giving away land. Um, and uh, our family had immigrated uh, and came to Pennsylvania and, um, from what we can tell, lived up in Bradford County. And then sometime when the government was giving away Wyoming in 500-acre plots, the McCombers decided to move there and got this free 100-acre plot. And this would have been the homestead where our ancestors settled down. And uh, they built this dugout. And then they built this cabin off to the side, which is still somewhat livable. Then we met this lady named Aunt May. And uh, Aunt May was this, I mean, she was pretty crazy. Um, she lived by herself a lot, and uh, she had come over from one of our ancestors in World War II. They met. She barely spoke English, but he thought they should get married, so they got married, and she moved to Wyoming. And she's still living in the same house that she came to when she came, uh, when she came here from French Caledonia, which is in the South Pacific. That's Pappy and Aunt May. That's where Dad went to church in Cody, the United Methodist Church. Dad's still going to heaven, in case you're worried. Um, And that's just this open road that makes me think about the rest of this story. So I want to introduce my dad to you. This is John McCumber. Dad, come on up. And uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about how we've owned what it means to be McCumber men. So give my dad a round of applause. Oh, your microphone. All right. Thanks, Dad, for hanging out with us and for being willing to, um, yeah, go to these places. So I told Dad to share as much as he's comfortable with. Honestly, I didn't prep him a whole lot because I didn't want to force him into anything. Um, but you want to stand? That'd be cool. Yeah. We sort of talked about a um, a basic line and way of thinking that we were going to be, um, you know, approaching this time together through. And so uh, um, a basic idea about what Dad's going to share and how it interacts with me. Um, but over the course of the last 10 years, Dad has really begun to, and not begun to, but he's really grown in so many ways that enabled him, I think, to begin to see himself outside of shame, or at least glimpses of himself outside of shame that was able then to look at me, his son, um, my sister and brother as, as, as well, um, but since I'm the one here, it's going to be my experience of it, um, and to begin to offer some keys to, to freedom. Um, things in my life that he observed that might also have been in his life and ways that those things um, butted against each other and what it looked like for him to walk in freedom from it and to offer me some help in myself walking freedom from it. Um, dad doing what he did didn't, I mean, it could have just, he, he could have just been talking to a wall if there wasn't ears to listen on my part, right? So don't think there's like some magic pill here. Bottom line is, is this is really stinking hard work. And if you want freedom from these things, you're going to work hard at it. And if, if you don't want freedom from these things, then you'll hear about it and be like, that'd be nice, but then you won't work hard at it. Um, but there's been a lot of hard work that, that dad's done. 
and that I've done and that we've done together. And uh, so, thanks. Tell us about yourself, where you come from, you know, some highlights of your life. Um, thank you guys for letting me speak. First of all, <clears throat> a little bit about um, my mom and dad. Uh, my dad was married to my mom when uh, my dad was, I think, 23. Uh, he went through high school. Uh, they actually went to high school together. Uh, when we went back to see, we actually met some of the people that rode the same bus with mom and dad and saw how they would set together on the bus. It was great. Um, they got married, and um, uh, dad, mom was, I think mom was 22 and dad was 23 uh, when they were married, January 17th in 1953. Um, from that time, I, they had their first son, and uh, my older brother's name is, is Vernon Eugene. Uh, my dad's name is Eugene McCumber, so he named him after him. Um, and he was born on June the 15th of 1954. Uh, Fifteen months later, I came along. Um, I'm the middle child. Of course, the middle child have certain problems that the older don't, you know, and the youngers don't. So um, that's why I worry about Marcy a lot. So, you know. So, <laughs> we know. <laughs> you know all about that. Uh, and then three years later, um, I was born on September 1st. And three, three years later, on September the 5th, my sister, Jody, was born. Um, from the time of my birth until um, I was 15 years old, um, my father was in the oil field. Um, he was a very good salesman, and wherever a new oil field would open up, they would take him to uh, and transfer him. So from the time that I was from one until I was um, 14, uh, 15 years old, we moved 22 times. Um, during that time, we actually lived in a trailer house the first, up through the first uh, through third grade. Mom and Dad had the couch nailed to the floor. Um, they had towels, special towels that she would wrap around the, the dishes in the in the cupboards, and we, she would tie the, the the you know the cupboard shut, pack everything up, and away a, a truck would come, and away we would go to a new place. Um, so it was a very transient type style, and we lived from anywhere from Texas, uh, New Mexico, Oklahoma, uh, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado and Montana. Uh, so we've, we traveled all the Midwest is where we went to. So it was hard to gain friends. Um, every time you turned around, we were moving and have to leave our friends. My brother ended up having to, was set back a year in school. So he and I were in the same grade from eighth grade on, which was tremendously hard, um, I think, for both of us uh, in many, many ways. Um, during this time, so we, so our, our travels finally, I finally stopped traveling um, when I was uh, 15. Uh, we, were, we went to a little bitty town called Lovington, New Mexico, was kind of like where we stopped. It was a very oil-rich county at that time, and it was very just booming. You know, a lot of things were happening. I just want to step back a little bit and talk about my mom. Um, mom was uh, a beautiful woman, just a gorgeous woman. Um, she was, uh, was very outgoing at first when she was growing up. And when she met Dad, um, she was a beauty operator. She loved to do hair. Um, but in that time also, um, when they would ever do permanents and that sort of stuff, the, the chemicals they used were very, very caustic. And apparently she used so much or did so much of it that it actually affected her lungs. Um, she had a lot of problems with, with respiratory effort and respiratory breathing. 
But really what did not help on top of that was her smoking. She was a very, very heavy smoker. Never would she quit. I don't ever remember even a time when, when she ever tried to quit. Um, but mom was, <clears throat> and also as we were growing up, mom seemed to be, uh, I don't remember a lot about my first years, but I can remember when I was in fourth grade that um, mom had to go away and have a major surgery. She went, they flew her, we were living in Casper, Wyoming at the time, and they flew her to Denver for this major surgery. So Grandma Schrader, um, my mom's mom, came down to stay with us. Um, after she came back, uh, mom was never the same. She was always sickly. Um, it seemed like that as time went on, things just got worse. So dad had to work. He was, uh, he was our sta- stability, uh, you know. Um, and so from Casper, we went from Casper to uh, Cody, Wyoming, is where we actually, um, you know, my brother was born. Um, like you said, I was dead. Mom, Butch was born in Cody. I was born in Colorado. My sister was born in Nebraska. Um, so we, we were very transient, as you can tell. So we moved from Casper. We moved to Cody. Um, we were able to, uh, and that's where a lot of my bonding came on with my cousins that I had. That's where I found out and got my first girlfriend, and I got my first kiss. <laughs> it was way back then in my first dance. I can remember that time was, was a special. And then we moved back from Cody. We moved back to Casper, um, which was when I was in sixth and seventh grade. From that time, then we moved to that cold, cold state of Montana. We moved to a little place called Glendive in the northeast corner. Um, it was a railroad town. Um, we had to cross about 15 tracks to get to school. Um, my brother and I would, that's where we got into our worst fights. I put him in the hospital, um, knocked the ribs loose in his chest. Um, he never bothered me after that. Um, so from that time, from, from Glendive is when we moved to, um, to Lovington. And it seemed like every move that we made, um, mom got a little worse. Um, by the time uh, we were in Lovington, uh, she couldn't walk from the chair to the kitchen and back without being out of breath. Um, so it was the the traveling, you know, everything that's happened on mom was really, really tough. Um, my dad, of course, he was our bedwinner. Uh, we didn't see much of him. Uh, everything was left to mom, you know, to do the, the bill paying and, and to take care of the house and everything. Dad was always there, you know, with the financial end of it. We would see him on weekends. Um, it was nice. Every once in a while, he would take us out on the on the the rigs with him, which was really cool. And what I loved about that was that we would ride out, and he would actually get out of the car and let me drive the car in the open when I was fourth and fifth grade, you know. And I could didn't make a difference if I missed the road. It was all back roads, all you know. Um, but he would actually just every once in a while grab over, you know, grab the grab the steering wheel. And, and put us back on course. Um, I was at almost one gusher of a well. Well, it was really, really cool. I had some, I had some, some, some cool times with dad, but they were few and far between. Uh, so most of our life was with mom. The year before mom died, um, she went to the hospital and. She couldn't breathe. One of her lungs collapsed. So at that time, they had what was called water bottle seals on the floor, and it would let the 
air, it, you know, it, we would pull the air out, but it wouldn't let more air in. It was just, uh, she was very sickly. Uh, she came home, and things seemed to go on wild. And then on February the 13th, um, the day before Valentine's Day, Dad took her to the hospital, and she died. So, changes your life. Um, we didn't know what we were going to do. All during this time, as Mom was getting sick, um, I would do the best I could to help take over things. My brother, Butch, was interested in girls. Um, he wasn't at the house much, and, of course, Jody had to be taken care of. So I kind of filled in with doing some of the, you know, the ironing, if I could, and the laundry to help Mom out. And then, of course, it devastated after she was gone. But what really devastated us is, would you believe that um, three months later, my dad remarried? Um, a lady named Rosie, we had found out, <clears throat> we, I had already knew her previously. She, um, she and dad, she was dad's, um, what do you call it, phone operator. With the message, you know, message call system, call center. Uh, Rosie ran this, ran this system, ran the, in her home, and uh, dad got to know her. And we ended up as a family, even my mom, uh, my my mom and, and Rosie got to know each other, and we as kids, we knew the other kids. So when Dad told us he was going to get married um, to Rosie, I ended up having um, four stepsisters and a stepbrother. So two stepbrothers, wasn't it? Yeah. So there were six more children involved. Well, they didn't all come with her, um, but they did have two two other two of the children did come with them. The rest of them stayed back in. We were living in New Mexico at the time, and she was from Abilene, Texas. Um, so Dad went over and saw her. I guess it was about two hours away, two and a half hours trip. Brought her back. They got married. And from that time, um, this was in, that would have been in, in 72. Um, Rosie, her name was Rosalie, or Rosie, took over. And voided it, whacked my nose out of joint. Um, she wanted to make me, you know, she thought my money should go one way, and I didn't think it should go that way. And, and who was she to talk because she wasn't my real mom? And uh, many times that happens in a lot of our families, you know, when, when families come together. And that's def but definitely what happened in my family. And then after that, um, it happened to be that um, I started my senior year of high school. And in my senior year of high school, um, I went to a government class. It was a wonderful class. The teacher was awesome. And sitting behind me, three rows, there was a young lady, uh, three, three seats, there was a young lady named Marianne Hill. She was on crutches. Uh, she had a, a, a polio uh, reaction. Um, she had the shot, and it reacted on her, and she ended up losing the, the use of her legs. So she was on crutches, and, and she had huge braces all over her legs. But I've never seen, up to that time, a, a, a happier-go-lucky person than she was. And come to find out, she knew Jesus. Um, and it was with that time, she would come, and she would come and ask me. She said, well, why don't you, why don't you come and, and, and just see what it's like you know, with our youth group? And, I said, and so one day I asked her, I said, okay, I'll come to your youth group if you come to a dance with me. So... And the, the, the church that I grew up in was a very strict church. Um, you didn't go dancing. You didn't go to movies. You didn't wear pants uh, at that time. It was a very strict... Men did. What? Men did. Men, well, men wore men pants. Men wore pants. But, but, the, 
but the, 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 the females were not a No pants. pants. It was a very, very conservative church uh, that I grew up. So, and I, she said, she said, doesn't oh, sound no. too conservative, Dad. Uh, not on that part, that part, that part. So it ended up that one day I was at home and I was outside and all of a sudden up drove two carloads of kids uh, from the youth group. Just met them, you know, they, they just, like, they fell in love with me and I, I thought, this is really awesome. So I ended up going to church and would you believe on April 1st, of 1973, I found the Lord as my Savior. I asked him into my heart. Um, and since that time, things really changed. You know, it changed in my perspective of life um, and who I wanted to serve and who was going to be, you know, who, what I wanted to do in my life. Rosie didn't like that at all. I mean, she and I butted heads like crazy. Um, and so most of my and reaction was that I just wouldn't stay around. I was gone. I would, you know, go with the youth group. I would be with the kids I knew. Um, and it ended up that finally I decided, and I actually fell in love with um, the pastor's family, the Robertson family. And with they had a, a two sisters, Joetta and Annette. And they just talked me, well, just leave that family and come on and live with us. So, you know, at the best time, that's... That sounded good to me, and so that's what I did. I got up one day, and one Sunday afternoon, I went to my house. The three of us, four of us went in and took all my clothes, walked out of the house with all of my stuff, and said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. Not so sure that was a good exit. Um, and it, like as Jay said, it left a big rift for a long time with, with my family, um, which I hated. Now, you know, thinking about it, but as time went on, it got better. But um, So I left um, and moved in with them for a year. Um, and then I decided that um, not only not me personally, well, I ended up really getting involved with the church. I had a bus ministry. I went, I, uh, God, it wasn't me. It was God that took no, uh, a class of boys, no boys, up to 13 boys. And I was able to lead four of them to the Lord at that time. And it was, I was really, really hot, I guess you could say, on fire for him. And so at that time, Pastor Robertson just knew that I, wanted to be, I was supposed to be a preacher. And I just followed his lead. And I was going to go to Bible college. And I was going to be a preacher. So um, that's what I decided to do. I stayed. I was at home for a full year. And then I went to school in 1974. Um, and that's when I was actually dating another girl when I went there, and um, it ended up that we broke off relations, and even when I first went to Springfield, Missouri, I saw that young lady in the, in the choir, um, and so that was in 1974 when I met Terry, um, and things just progressed. We got to know each other, and we were married in 1975, in October. Um, I guess you could say that's a, a story of how my life began. A lot of things happened, um, and even thinking about the things that, that had happened, and, and we'll go into it further, but that's, that was our life. And then since that time, uh, we had Jay, and then um, four years later, we had Marcy, and then three years after that, we had Jean. And as you can see, they've, you know, it's, it's awesome being around family. It's a neat being here. Um, it's a... A totally different world when you know the Lord than when you don't. Um, my family would, uh, my family would, 
we would go to church at the Methodist church every once in a while, you know, especially for Easter and for Christmas and that sort of thing. But, um, uh, Chris, you know, but Christ was really not on their hearts. And I, and I, I really um, was not at first even wanting to talk to them because of, of the, how negative things were when we left home. And then after I got to go to, to church, after we started going to college, you know, things started warming up and Dad and I would have fights over the phone about why I left. And, and that's when I took a big turn saying, it just can't be this way. You know, it's got to change. You know, things have got to get better. And as the years have gone on, I've tried to be the best testimony that I've, I, have, I could to my family from a distance. I'm out here in, 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 in uh, Pennsylvania and dad, since that time, had moved seven more times. So well, new oil fields, new jobs, you know, the, so that kept him busy and kept the family out there. Um, so I guess you could say that's where we're, we're family. Cool. Yeah, and it was really, I remember as a kid, like um, not being connected to um, dad's side of the family or dad's story in that regard much at all because dad so readily Mom's side of the family so readily embraced dad, literally as a son. I mean, he just became a, one of the kids. I mean, the, right. the in-law part fell off for John in regard to my grandparents on my mom's side. And, um, and so uh, that just became this really safe haven, I think, for, right. for a lot of the work that God opened up for you to start to re-engage that. I remember I was in the 10th grade. I had just won a starting position on our soccer team and uh, it was the homecoming game that weekend and my parents had planned a trip to Texas <laughs> over this thing. I decided I wasn't <laughs> going to go. Well, they decided to pick that battle and they won that battle and I ended up having to go. But I, that was, that was the, I, I think the first like really active engagement. I would have been 16, Gene, you'd have been nine, eight or nine at the time. Um, that was the first really active engagement that I remember um, with with your family on on that side, and it was That's also um, because we went to Texas, where they lived at the time. It was the first time that I I can remember as a boy being like, "Oh, my dad, he's not from Pennsylvania. Like he's he's got this he's got this other story part of that I've that I've never really pursued. I was 16 at the time. I'm pretty selfish as 16 year olds can be. Um, so, I mean, I didn't pursue it a lot at that point, but I remember at that point being like, oh, huh, that, that's interesting. And I think that it was that trip where things started to heal for you and Pappy in, in a so way. Too. That was just, yeah. that was, that's, that was an, an act I mean, of sacrifice to, for that kind of a, that kind of a trip. And things really started to, to heal, which provided then for, um, that was the beginning of what led to dad coming to me and Gene and saying, hey, this is what I want to do. Like, um, I want you to know, essentially what dad said was, I want you to know me and to know yourselves better by knowing me and where I come from and um, what it is that this part of my life was like. So, um, what was in your heart? Like, what was your motivation in, well, that, biggest, in that space? Yeah, that's what it was. The biggest motivation was that, yes, I have an awesome, awesome family, you know, in, in Pennsylvania um, and what it was like. But 
My kids, <clears throat> all of my kids and the rest of my family have never seen really what it's like to be in the West, what it's like to see um, or even feel what it's like for me when growing up with, with uh, who we stayed with, with Fran and Alan, Uncle Fran and Alan, Uncle Alan and Fran, was, uh, was some of my happiest times, you know, and they didn't see that. They've never seen, had never seen that side of how happy I was in, tech, in Wyoming. Um, and I wanted them to see that. I wanted them to see also the biggest things. And what the, my biggest thing was, I want them to go out there and I want to see the absolutely best beauty that God has ever made in his life <laughs> in, a, a, out of this world um, and how pretty the Rocky Mountains are. Um, but also I wanted, and we tried just to find out, you know, we were able to drive by to see where my dad was born in one of the houses where he was born. Um, we were able to, um, in Cody, um, both of my grandparents, sets of grandparents from my mom and my dad, both lived in Cody. Mom and uh, grandma and granddad Cummer, as we never said McCumber, we always said grandma and, grandma and granddad Cummer. They lived at the bottom of the hill, um, and grandma and granddad Schrader lived at the top of the hill. So um, we were able to go around and see all of those things, and that were things that they were missing that was really dear to my heart, that I wanted them to see. Um, I wanted them to know my side of the family um, a little bit because with Terry's side of the family, you know, I fell in love with them. I actually gained a mom because I lost my mom. And Rosie sure didn't fit in. I mean, she was not in, the, uh, she was not in my picture of what a mom should be. Um, but mom, Ella was, really took over that, that position. So uh, that was the biggest things. I think that, and to show you guys that we could all, we could have an awesome time Mm -hmm. together. Um, And what I didn't expect was the bonding and the the times that we were able to share together. That was, that was not in what I wanted to do, you know, Um, but it's ultimately really, really had a big impact on my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there were some some key conversations that the three of us were able to have together that it continues to have an impact on who I am now and, and how I develop now. Um, and they came, and the point here in this whole Psalm 78 thing is that this, these, these conversations were not the point, right? Dad didn't sit us down and be like, okay, here's what's wrong with me, here's what's wrong with you, and this is what you can do to fix it. Like Dad told us about himself. Like he, he, he observed who he was, where he came from, and he loved us enough to want to share that with us, including the things that he didn't get right. I mean, in listening to Dad talk about his relationship with Rosie, and not just how she, she treated him, but how he treated her, and the pain that that caused, and the distance that that caused, I mean, that didn't, that wasn't the point. That wasn't why we went out there, but that's the story that we heard. And so it opened up for me a piece of dad that I didn't know was there, that, that, that needed to be engaged, and was sort of like, well, huh. I mean, when Sherry and I have a rift, my first instinct is to pull, is to isolate, is to disappear, you know, is to, um, or, or just to check out, um, or to decide that I'm going to win, and you know, so but I, so there, there were there were these things that because Dad was sharing the dark parables, the sayings from of old, right, it was it opened up a space for something else to happen on a spiritual level that wasn't planned and that was organic. And I think that 
also, we could have gone through the whole trip and we could have seen the things we wanted to see, but I don't think that it would have been what it would have been if you had not started asking questions mm -hmm. and that Gene had not started asking questions about my life, which gave me the freedom to bring that out as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, you could see that happen. That, that was cool. So like I said at the beginning of this, like this takes work. This isn't about you being served or, or, or receiving. This is about together in it and, and working for something bigger. What are some of the things that you saw in yourself as a man and that God led you in sharing with me? Like the observations that you would have had about you, observations that you had about me, and some of the ways that we engaged each other as a result of that. Um, <clears throat> I wanted, I guess you, as, as time went on, I knew that, my, uh, that Terry was the most important person in my life. And I wanted to make sure that my son knew that if he were to pick a mate, that he would want to treat her with the utmost respect, that he would want to love her as much as possible, as with all of his heart, with all of his mind, that he possibly could. Um, I know that it didn't always turn out that way, that you know the hurts were there, the, the times, the rough times always came. Um, there were things that happened that would devastate both of us. Um, there was times when um, I would try to be the best husband that I could. I wanted to always please. Um, and I thought the best way, many times the best way of taking care of, of a problem uh, or to maybe put a problem aside is to do something to help please, to make it positive and to please, to please Terry or to please uh, my family. That's not always the best way to go. Um, sometimes being the pleasing, uh, if it's financial, I would always say, okay, yeah, I'll put the money forward now, but I have the consequences to pay, and I had to figure out some way to take and take what I did and uh, the, the part where maybe I did it on a credit card and what was I going to do to pay for it. Um, those things I had to hide, and those things I did hide, um, and I was not always truthful with, um, with the, like I should have been. Um, it was my heart's desire to have the very best for my family, but boy, did I screw up many times. Um, and it was always the under, under that I tried to keep back until finally it just almost like Yellowstone. It, it came to a volcano and it would burst. Um, and that happened three significant times it's happened in our lives. Um, each impact, uh, each one of those impacts has hit me. You're talking financial, financial? Financial wise. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to happen to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to make sure that you knew that, you know, that I wanted, that, that I wanted what was best for you. Um, that I wanted you to know that, yes, we want to keep our family safe. We want to do the very best we can for them to make sure that, that we know that we love them, but You've got to be honest. Mm -hmm. You've got to tell people, you've got to tell your family what's really true and what's really right. Um, I didn't always do that. <clears throat> Those were some of my faults. Um, but you know, through it all, every time that I would falter, God always was there to pick me up again um, and put me back on that path, and we would go a little bit further. 
you know, and things would happen, and I would think things were getting along, going along just great, and then I would think, okay, I went from, uh, when I first started, um, after I went to Bible college, finally ended up that, no, I was not supposed to be a preacher. Um, I was not a God-called preacher at all. I would get sick. I would have diarrhea if I had to preach, <laughs> if I had to speak. Um, Terry would find me in the bathroom, you know, trying to vomit sometimes, uh, just because I was not in the capacity of being a minister, um, even though Pastor Shirey thought I was. So finally I decided that this is not what I was supposed to do with my life. This is not what God wanted for me. I ended up um, working in a nursing home while I was at school. Um, it was a practical nursing home. This is in 1974 to 78, quite a while back. Some of you I know, don't even think that's the old, old ages. But I was actually the charge nurse. I, was, I took care of 118 patients. I gave them their shots. I gave them their, their pills at that time. And I had an LPN on call if I needed it. And I had a doctor on call. So I loved, I fell in love with the medical profession. I ended up going back from where we lived in Springfield to back to New Mexico and getting my RN license, uh, registered nurse. And then I went to work in a hospital. And from that time on, I've, I've been working in the medical profession all along. Um, I started off with a, a salary of $3, $2.25 an hour. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. Um, when I got my LP, LPN license, it went up to about uh, $5 an hour. I got my RN license. It went up to about $8 an hour. Ah, we were living high. I mean, <laughs> to, from what we had before, you know. Um, I had a, we bought a house. My house payment was $133 a month. Um, and so yet I knew I, I had the money and yet I didn't control it and I overspent. Um, which led to problems and I wanted to... I wanted to do what was best for my family, and it just got out of control. And but Terry didn't know about it until after it was done, till after the the, the, the heartache, till after everything happened. Um, and then we seemed to take care of that. God, for, you know, forgave me of all that, and it, and we went through, and it it happened again. Um, so as you build up and you get, you know, you get a better finances and all, and things think, well, you think, well, I can do this, I can do that, I, I can get credit, and I can go forward, and like that, and, sorry, Dennis, I'm just about the credit. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> this, this isn't a prescription. And, what? This isn't a prescription. It's right, not, a deal things, right? not at all. Um, and it just, it just built up, and, and it ended up going, going into deceit, and it going, going into lies, and going into, uh, places where it should not have gone, and ended up blowing in my face with another volcano again. So I didn't want you to have to go through that. Mm -hmm. um, and those things happened before we went to Wyoming. Mm -hmm. You know, those, those particular things happened. So. Yeah, those things happened, but then we went to Wyoming. Right. And then about a year after that, maybe less after Wyoming, Dad came to me. And uh, because in our, our family, finances have always been an issue too. It's just always been a point of tension. Um, particularly with the medical debt that we incurred for, through our through our, our kids, um, and I, dad, dad just intuitively, I, well, not intuitively, but experientially, he could see the weight that I was carrying regarding this stuff, right? And one day he came to me, and I think it was with mom, and it was with Sherry, and he just simply said, "Look, this has always been a struggle for me," and he said, "And I'm really sorry that it's a struggle for you." 
you know, you and I, like, we're connected, and there's a reason why you struggle with this. But I don't want this for you, and I want to help you however I can for this not to be so heavy for you. That's the most life-giving thing Dad's ever done for me. He didn't, you know, he didn't write me a check. He didn't take care of the problems or anything like that. He just, he, he, he was real. He was vulnerable. He was vulnerable. He was transparent and honest within the community of his wife and his son and his daughter-in-law. And he was, and he, and he left it there. He didn't try to fix anything. It just was what it was. And it was a, a beautiful moment of healing. For me, it's one of the key markers of my spiritual development over the course of the last few years. Because, frankly, I don't, money, I don't manage money that great either. But because I don't manage money that well, I had to have control over it. But after Dad had that conversation with me, now Sherry runs things. And for Sherry to run things meant that we met with Dennis and Elaine. <laughs> and and we, we met with Dennis and Elaine several times for financial accountability and for, for goals. And Sherry and I are together. So now it's not this ridiculous weight on me. It's not this shame-based, Jay, you're not a man because you can't make this work kind of a thing. That's what it was. It's, it's now this point, I'm not alone. I'm, I'm with my wife. I'm with my parents. I'm with Dennis and Elaine. And the, it's, is it still vulnerable? Sure. Is it always easy? No. Um, but I'm not alone in it anymore. My dad, because of his vulnerability, unlocked a freedom from, not from the finances, there's not loads of money rolling around. What he unlocked was me from shame and from the weight and the pressure of that. So, thanks, Dad. And not only did it unlock you, it, un- it, it unlocked me too. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think God has just really, really blessed us both mm-hmm. since, since that time mm-hmm. and has helped to build our relationship and to build things for both of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Um, so in summation, since we've reached that time, um, in summation, one, one thing that we tend to do like, with stuff like this is, um, and this is a hard word that I'm about to give. I should probably preface it with that. Um, what I'm about to say is, is really, it's, it's pretty, it's not kind. Um, but it's that the instinct is to say, well, who's going to do this for me? You can sit up here and you can listen to this story, and the instinct is to say, well, my, my, my dad would never do this for me, or my dad's not around to do this for me, or, you know, my, my mom was the one that wounded me, and she would never recognize that she wounded me, uh, you know, at, at all. Or There's these kinds of things, and the question is, who, who's going to do this for me? Like, who's going to take care of me? Um, I want to encourage you. I guess I want to tell you that that's, to ask that, that's not the purpose. Those are fine questions, but that's not the purpose of this teaching. The purpose of this teaching is to equip you to do it for them. This is to give you a picture of what it looks like for you, wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you come from, to do it for the children in your life, to do it for your kids 
to do it for your spiritual kids, to do it for your neighborhood kids, to do it for your nieces and nephews and cousins. God can and will meet you and provide for you what you need to process and to work through those things. The way this happened with me and dad is is a very redemptive way for it to happen. I know that a lot of you don't have that. And this isn't at all meant to be a sort of, this is what it's supposed to be like. Not not at all. Um, I hope that God provides that for you, and I believe that he can and will. That's why the church exists, is to be the face of that to one another in the places where it doesn't happen the way that it should because we live in sinful, broken places. Um, But this, the way that Dad acted toward me, is deeply redemptive. You can take this, and you can be this in their lives. This, this you can walk in. You, you, you can, through your own dark parables and the stories that you would rather put away, in vulnerability with the wisdom of God, share yourself in such a way that it sets other people free. That, that, that it is a key piece of your children and the children that are in your life walking in freedom by you with God owning your own story and allowing, by the sharing of that, that story to become a piece of beautiful redemption in the life of somebody else. Is there anything else you want to share, Dad? I guess the only thing else that I do want to say is that I think back even years ago when I had wanted to do this, um, for some reason I just think Terry knew that this was a good, going to be a good thing for us to mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she encouraged me to, to make sure that we would go. All during the little trip, the trip, she, she put, st- stuck these little things in my socks and had uh, encouraging, uh, you know, I hope that this trip is best for you, that you can unlock the things you need. I mean, it was, so support is always there. Sherry is there for, for Jay. You know, that support is there. And always, and I think that that's just one thing that God seems to know when there are some people around you that maybe the, when you are hurting, Sometimes they know things, you know, that you don't think they do, and they're there to support you. All you have to do is open up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. Vulnerability. Vulnerability is the key to breaking generational sin, to breaking family curses and family sin. Vulnerability. It is the key. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for our um, privilege of being together of hearing Dad's story of uh, the way in which um, you've used him as an example um, to our body this morning of what it looks like for us to be people who walk in vulnerability. Um, we, uh, um, we honor him and we honor uh, your word and your word to us about this vulnerability piece, um, about being people, a generation who's willing to receive the dark and the hard things about ourselves, walk in them in vulnerability with you, and walk in and with them in vulnerability toward the generation that is coming after us. God, continue to work this in us. Make us people who are courageous. God, make us people who um, have such a heart for you and such a heart for your life and for the generational blessing that you desire to be in place um, that it pushes and moves us toward um, embracing these things with you, receiving you, receiving your healing in our lives, and walking in it. We bless you, God. We thank you for the story that you are walking each one of us down. Lead us into and through your paths of healing for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dad. Let's give that a hand.
That's going to be it for today. Um, thanks so much for your kind attention and um, for your honoring of Dad's story and our story together. Um, if you have questions or stuff you want to seek out from either one of us or if you want to know how our wives felt in the midst of all this, um, if you want to talk to Gene about his experience, I mean, I know that we're all open to engaging those things together as well. So thanks for being here today. Go with God.